You're listening to the HSDNA podcast from the Garden State. Your host, Justin Starbird, and guests from HS Design walk you through each step of the medical product development process. Listen in as they discuss topics like contextual research, human factor testing, and conceptualization, giving you the best practices and real examples of success in the field. And now, here's your host, Justin Starbird. Welcome back to the HSDNA podcast. My name is Justin Starbird. Uh, today we are continuing our sub-series on applied human factors in medical device design. I am joined as always for this series by Dr. Mary Beth Privater. Mary Beth, thanks for uh, joining me again today. Oh, thanks, Justin. I'm super excited about today's podcast. Um, I am joined by two of my very, very closely respected colleagues and friends, Ian Culverhouse and Melissa Lemke. And um, I'm so excited to share this information with you all. It's, it's going to be fantastic. I'm really looking forward to their input, as always. <laughs> Yeah, you know, this is exciting. We've this is our our third installment of this series, um, and today is the first time we're we're having guests that, that also contributed to the book. Why don't you introduce uh, Ian and Melissa? Sure, Ian, tell us about yourself. Thanks, Mary Beth, and thanks, Justin, for the invite. Uh, really happy to be part of this. Um, so my name is Ian Culverhouse. I'm director at Weavers Medical. Uh, we're a specialist human factors consultancy based in the UK, uh, focused on supporting clients around the world develop their medical devices uh, across a, a really wide variety of um, areas. Really. Great. And Melissa? Hello. Thank you again for organizing this series and inviting me. I'm really excited to be talking about these useful tools today. Um, Melissa Lemke, Managing Director of Human Factors Engineering with Agilis Consulting Group. We're a full-service human factors and instructional design firm, and we focus exclusively on helping medical device and combination product or drug delivery product developers. Um, so we've been doing this for about 20 years, and we've developed a scalable process that helps our clients um, systematically and successfully optimize user interfaces and produce successful regulatory submissions. And of course, as part of that process, we use the tools we're going to be talking about today. So I'm excited to share some of that. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, I have to tell you guys that um, you were um, an amazing, fantastic team, and I'm so excited that I could completely and entirely rely on you and your contributions for the book. So that's a little bit what I want to talk about today. And really, this focus of today's podcast is about discovery and input methods, which is one of the sections that we wrote in the book. And um, Ian, I love your global outlook. And Melissa, I, I love that you guys always include instructional design and just totally solid in your, your approach. So, you know, what I want to get today is really just sharing some of what we learned and I'm going to hit each one of them. Um, I know that, um, you know, Ian, you and I worked together on the contextual inquiry um, section of it and Melissa, you worked on the task analysis. So let's just hit those one at a time and kind of do a little bit of a dive and share some of the stories, some of the methodologies. So um, let's, let's just jump in. So Ian, let's, uh, let's go with some of the methodologies. Can you share the methodologies of contextual inquiry and why that's important, how it's used with, um, with medical device development? Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, so for me, contextual inquiry is a really, really powerful technique that looks uh, beyond looking just at the device at a task level, but it looks to better understand the world in which that device or the system would be used in. Um, and it's, uh, as to Melissa's point, contextual inquiry can be scalable. Um, it can be a relatively small focused piece of work, or it could be a fairly large program where you might end up visiting multiple different countries, multiple uh, different locations and sites. And it really depends on what your core objectives are. Um, so we've used contextual inquiry uh, to inform the early stages of uh, things like asthma diagnosis systems. And that was really about understanding how a new system might integrate uh, within an existing healthcare uh, setting. And that looked at, not, as I said, not just the device itself, but uh, identifying all of the different people that would be involved in that diagnosis chain, what their roles and responsibilities might be, the degree of patient contact or engagement that each person would have, and even then down to the nuts and bolts of level of uh, access to certain equipment and procedural time constraints. Uh, for example, when we first worked with that client, it wasn't known how long the diagnosis procedure might actually take. But what we learned was that uh, the time that a particular patient has with their consultant was fairly limited to 10 minutes. And that set some fairly fundamental parameters for the device development teams then work towards uh, at a later date. And then on a much bigger scale, uh, contextual inquiry is often used for understanding clinical practice related to surgical procedures and uh, complex uh, dynamics between different healthcare professionals within uh, maybe an OR or an ICU setting. That's interesting. You know, I always think of contextual inquiry as kind of capturing all those little itty bitty bits of really important information that doesn't necessarily make it to publish. So, you know, they don't make it to peer reviewed literature. It's all of that stuff that happens around a product uh, that you're designing that you would have otherwise no knowledge of. So, um, for those of you that, that are, are unaware of the contextual inquiry word, it, it, it really kind of gets down to going in and asking people and watching them how they go about their business. So, you know, you, you talk about, um, you know, how they interact with the patients. Do you have any examples of, of how just, um, you know, from a patient's perspective or, or even from the providers, you know, just how important that interaction is and understanding that interaction in, in product design? Yeah, definitely. I think it, it varies on a great deal. So if you're talking about a medical device which would be used entirely by a surgical team, then the patient is likely to be very unaware of the, the interactions of that device. Whereas if you've got a device where a patient may receive it in an outpatient's clinic and then be sent home, then understanding the dynamics between the healthcare professional, the patient, and then the, the tasks that they're expected to do at a later date and where they might need to use this device or how it might be stored in, in the real world uh, is, is fundamental to that design. 
Yeah, it's it's interesting. So, sounds like just like HS Design, you know, we go in, we go into the hospital, we go into patients' homes to do some interviewing, um, to do some observations. And I know that, um, you know, some of the information that we gather um, while we're out in the field, you know, we we can get a description of the use environment, the users. We can look at their challenges, insights. You know, gather for how the communications, any cultural biases. And I know that sometimes when we are in the United States, there are some specific challenges to conducting a contextual inquiry. Um, and, and we've come up with some creative solutions. But Ian, I was wondering if you could tell me some of the challenges that you face, um, both when you're trying to do it, because you're, you're clearly not a US-based company, but when you're trying to do it either in the United States or even in Europe, what are some of the challenges to conducting contextual inquiry? It's a great question. And I think the first thing that we're seeing a, a huge amount of increase around contextual inquiry is the, uh, the red tape and the bureaucracy, which uh, quite rightly go hand in hand with trying to conduct uh, observations around patients and healthcare professionals. Um, I think a decade ago, it was relatively straightforward to gain access to a hospital. Uh, now it's a lot more challenging. And for us, one of the um, logistical things that we had to overcome when conducting some studies in the US, even related to access to vaccinations, which uh, some of the vaccinations required to gain access to a US OR, uh, you can't actually get in the UK. So we had to schedule that time to actually visit a CVS in the US when we landed to go and get our jabs and then um, make sure that we were adequately prepared uh, ahead of actually entering into that hospital. Um, and I think one of the, the main challenges, the bureaucracy, as I said, is once you understand the process and once you work with the hospitals, that can uh, easily be uh, worked around and it can, you can overcome it. Um, probably a consistent challenge is really the sporadic nature of who you want to observe and um, just the unanticipated uh, schedule that you have to work to when you're conducting these, these studies. You might find that you spend a lot of time in coffee shops hanging around um, and um, quite often that can be a challenge to communicate to the end client. If they're very new to contextual inquiry, there's, there's sometimes not a definite length of time that you will be in field for. Uh, it can really be as of when the patient caseload arises. Yeah, it, it, it is. It does seem to be, uh, you know, you're, you're, I always say you're, you're always held captive to the clinical calendar. And, um, you know, I was once part of emergency medicine and the chief of emergency medicine, he always said the best way to cure a disease is to study it. Because as soon as you start studying it, it seems like it just kind of goes away and it and it cures itself. So, you know, I think that it's definitely definitely a challenge. I know that in our practice, what's interesting that we've been doing is that the length of time that it takes when you start a contextual inquiry until you get the permissions to do to get access. It seems like you know, you've made some fundamental assumptions that in the design process that's even kicked off the program. You know, I, I want something lighter, smaller. They may have heard something from their uh, sales representatives that are out in the field, the front line. And, and I think one of the, the, the techniques that um, we've been doing in, in terms of just getting out to look at it and make a little bit of a robust contextual inquiry is actually either 
scheduling more labs. So we're doing things more in a cadaver lab and, and trying to where we can stop and we can ask questions. But that's, of course, not as ideal as in the OR itself or in the hospital because you don't have that element of time or, you know, but if it's an emergency medicine type of problem, you can't schedule that, of course. And the other thing that we have um, adopted, too, is to take in initial ideas, initial um, prompts that we can hold a conversation with. Have you, have you done any of that, Ian? Have you, have you brought in some, uh, you know, what have you done in terms of to try to mitigate? I'm talking about that time where, you know, you know you want to get in and you've got six months to wait before you get IRB approval or you're waiting to get the study approved and get the permissions. What, how do you speed up that process of product development? I think that's a really good point and it's something that yes we we have got experience of, of doing that as well i think to your point of uh trying to make the most of the time that you've got in front of people that's absolutely essential uh, for this type of research so having a few crude models that maybe just communicate the, either the basic ergonomics of the device or the workflow that you're intending that can yeah. be really valuable feedback that you may even only get through a 10 minute corridor conversation with someone. Um, but you're on site, you've got permission to be there, everyone's engaged in the topic. So it, it, that's a really valuable thing. And I think yeah. the, other, the other technique that we've used is to uh, make sure that your IRB approval is um, considered to be kind of a framework so it doesn't just grant you access for one particular phase in your development process but if you know you want to go back say three to six months later and you want to um, you maybe at the time when you do your first part you don't have those prototypes to put into people's hands if you've built this framework with your IRB submission and you've got permission to go back then it's a bit of forward planning where you can say okay we can close the loop on having to get reapproval later down the line and that tends to shorten cut things as well. And that's a, that's really interesting, and and I really need to say thank you to you because um, for those people that go out and they they read the book and they take a look at the chapter that Ian and I put together on contextual inquiry, Ian has done you all a great favor. And if you go in and you look at some of the figures in that chapter, you're going to find the entire process of submitting for IRB approval in the UK. It is outlined for you. So I I highly recommend for those of you who are less um, familiar with the IRB and less familiar with the IRB process um, in a foreign country to go ahead and take a look at um, at that chapter and, and really um, thank Ian for, for so willingly to share and open um, information and to diagram out um, what it takes to submit the approval process and getting things initiated. So thanks Ian for that information. It's so helpful for everyone to just go ahead and share and um, and, and be able to go in appropriately. Okay, very welcome. So now I'd like to switch gears a little bit to Melissa. Melissa, you wrote an amazing chapter on task analysis and I'm going to just let you roll with this because I find that task analysis is really the backbone of a human factors program. It's something that we rely on. So, Melissa, what can you tell me about task analysis? What is it and why is it important? Thanks, Mary Beth. Yeah, task analysis absolutely is one of the most important and beneficial human factors tools that we have to work with. Um, so it's a systematic hierarchical breakdown of user performance or 
device use steps. Um, and importantly, we kind of take a step back from thinking about the device user interface and we look at it from the user perspective. So we start documenting what are the user interactions that are required to reach some outcome, perform some function, or use the features of the product or device. Um, so that's kind of often a shift um, and writing or developing task analyses can often be challenging to get you know, down to the detailed level that you need in order to know what are we going to be designing to or assessing, um, because it is a shift thinking about that user perspective. So we're thinking about tasks, subtasks, steps, you can call it different things, but it's basically just the breakdown um, of the pieces or the flows or the processes that users need to perform in order to get through that device use process. Um, and task analysis is used throughout the product design cycle. So during the very early design phases, later stage design, um, both thinking about for um, design development of the device user interface as well as the instructional materials, so IFUs, training, um, all the way through to formative evaluations where you're having people do simulated use testing and validation testing. So that kind of final stage of before pre-market submissions. And we think about task analysis as really a living document because it's very dynamic as your user interface is changing, as the design team is iterating, what, you know, how they're gonna get the user to interact with a product then you have to update those performance aspects. Um, so again, you're kind of thinking of it throughout the, the stages and you're revisiting that task analysis constantly. That sounds like it is absolutely, and I completely agree, the, the backbone, and, and I love your comment that it's a living document. I know that um, if you go back to my chapter with Ian, um, you know, we're using task analysis in, in regards to just doing, um, you know, in contextual inquiry, it's one of the things that we are looking at is what are the tasks mm -hmm. and who's doing it. So, you know, I, I, I appreciate that it, it's such a living document. So in the chapter and in, in the FDA guidance, it talks about this PCA model. And in that to me, you know, I, I under, I think that, you know, when I first experienced task analysis and when I talked to young students learning human factors and how to apply it, you know, they can go, okay, I can see where I can break it up step by step, but can you talk a little bit and explain what you're referring to and what FDA means with the PCA model? Absolutely. So, um, at Agilis, we bring PCA into all of our task analyses. So, as you can imagine, um, you're already breaking the, the, in, the user interactions with the device down into these tasks, subtasks. So you're kind of getting down to the very detailed level. We're gonna take it one step further. And again, we're focusing on the user interaction. So PCA stands for Perceptual Cognitive and Action Model. So for each task, you're thinking about what does the user need to see here, those perceptual components? What does the user need to cognitively understand or know? And then what does the user need to do, that action piece? So, you know, for every task, you're breaking it down even further and thinking about maybe those cues or is there gonna hear a click or see an LED illuminate, those type of things. Um, and so that allows you to really break things down further. And as you think about, again, using the task analysis throughout, 
the design <clears throat> cycle, you, in the early stages, you can use PCA and the task subtasks to think about how can I improve my design? So if you, you have a lot of PCA elements and you start thinking about the, the likely characteristics or demographic um, characteristics of your intended users, and there's a mismatch between users are going to need to know something complex and you're, you're designing for lay users, you can identify that's probably going to be problematic and go back to your design team. Um, and then same thing, you know, cognitive and action model components. Um, if you think about a device early on in your prototypes, you may have to assemble many features. And if you're thinking about your end users, they may not have, you know, extreme dexterity or they may have some limitations. So you start to identify mismatches. So that's kind of how we use PCA on the early end of um, the design cycle. During evaluation, we use it for root cause analysis. So again, we're thinking about really those perception, cognitive, and action um, elements, requirements, and where is that mismatch? Where are users having difficulties or experiencing use errors? And what is the cause? Is it something around the PCA? Um, characteristics that we've already identified assigned to a task. So PCA, again, is a very um, powerful um, analytical tool that helps you prepare and, and kind of get ahead of potential difficulties, use errors that users might um, experience. That's great. And I know that um, the one that I really, really loved and appreciated about your chapter that you, you provided and um, was um, was not just the the you know this explanation is great it's covered in more detail in the book but also you have a great explanation for taking the 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 use subtasks the PCA elements looking at use errors and potential harm with the the risk piece of that so mm -hmm. can you tell me a little bit about how you know you go from just identifying it through that risk analysis piece of it. Absolutely. So, um, so we had a figure in the chapter that kind of outlines the process or steps with the task analysis. And absolutely, again, the task analysis is an analytical tool. So it's, it's definitely a very engineering approach where we're looking at kind of traceability um, between the user, the product or device user interface, those interactions. Then we're bringing in PCA to kind of systematically break down those interactions even further. Then we're bringing in potential use errors. What might we see go wrong? Again, kind of thinking about information that's already documented in the task analysis. And then we're linking with the risk analysis because this is all preparing us, again, on the design end to, better, to optimize the design before we even need to bring in users for testing. So very early we can identify, you know, if we have um, a critical task and, the severity of harm on some subtask is very um, high. We know that we need to, to have, you know, several mitigations or very strong mitigations for those tasks and potential use errors. Um, and then during testing, same thing. We can help um, identify like what are the most um, high priority tasks or subtasks that we need to be focusing on to optimize from a risk perspective. Because um, obviously with medical devices, safety and effectiveness is our priority. Um, and so it just helps you kind of systematically, again, break down 
that analysis phase, that validation phase. Um, so a lot of linking between um, the risk analysis, potential harm, uh, potential use errors, PCA, kind of working backwards, task, subtasks um, happen in the task analysis. And that honestly is what makes it one of the most important foundational tools for everything that we can do in human factors. Yeah, I can see. So you mentioned earlier about how task analysis relates to instructional design, and I know that that's a, a key area. And and for um, and you uh, and Adilis really was responsible for Amy's instructional design course materials and really putting that together. And I think I know when I look at historically, you all have been in the forefront of of instructional material design. Um, so do you? So in a, and in my simple mind, and I know that it's it's probably not like this, but I I really see this nice connection of being able to just take the final tasks and and just using that for uh, for your instructional design materials. Is it really that simple, or is there something else that needs to happen? Um, sort of. So we definitely work very closely between the human factors side of Agilus and the instructional design side of Agilus. We have two um, core teams that focus on either human factors engineering or instructional design. Um, the task analysis is that common link between us. Um, so mm -hmm. we do a lot of handoffs and we do a lot of iterations um, when we're working with clients to develop instructional materials. Um, as instructional designers, you'll hear our, our team say, you know, we can't develop good instructions without a good task analysis. And interestingly, um, the instructional design team often takes the human factors task analysis and dives even deeper. They add another layer of information and detail and breakdown um, of what successful performance looks like. So they need to know how do users know that they've reached successful performance? So again, thinking about those clips, clicks, snaps, LED illuminations, things like that. Um, and you'll hear instructional designers talk about KSAs or knowledge, skills, and abilities. So they, they bring that into the task analysis as well. But absolutely, the task analysis, again, is the foundation of instructional design. And it is, it's not a one-for-one, -one, but you absolutely do take the task analysis and it's a, a huge input to development of instructional design um, materials. And we're going to have more on instructional design, because that's a whole nother chapter in this book <laughs> um, brought, to, brought to you by one of, uh, one of your colleagues. Um, so I, I appreciate all, all of that. And I really think, I want to thank um, well, I have, to wrap we, up. Let me jump in. Oh, I, sorry, Justin. Yeah, yeah, no, no problem. Because I, I think what we really want to know, too, is what were some of the surprises that you each faced as you kind of went through this exercise with Mary Beth? So Melissa, we started with Ian, we'll start with you on that. What were some of the surprises and challenges that maybe you weren't uh, expecting as you, you know, decided to take on this project? Let's see. Um, I think that the, the, the long duration of, of the writing. So, you know, I've done a lot of technical writing, but I think in this book, we really tried to focus on applied um, very um, useful tips and case studies and um, trying to get away from the more kind of academic writing and really give a toolkit about the toolkit, right? Um, so, you know, just 
I worked closely with um, my team at Agilis to develop all of the chapters and just the iterations that we went through and really trying to put in the most useful information. So there was just a lot of writing, editing, re-editing, um, and then we had a great editing team, Mary Beth and others, you know, reviewed the chapters. So just the peer review process. So I think the time um, that it took across, I think we wrote, you know, over a year on, on the book and we met periodically. So um, that was probably one of the biggest challenges was just kind of keeping the momentum going and keeping the iterations going and um, trying to get to that optimized chapter. Yeah. Well, and, uh, and Mary Beth, I'm sure it was really tough to work for work with <laughs> she was a very good motivator and really <laughs> encouraging and um and the thing about mary beth is you know she was in there writing with us and you know providing great um input and feedback so um she's been great awesome i was living it i was living i was living the dream right yeah with right <laughs> well ian you got to give us some dirt because melissa was very uh very pc about that she was very uh, you know give give us what really happened you know you're in denmark today you live in the uk you you, you know no holds barred <laughs> yeah i i live far away, far enough away but i do come to the us frequently so there won't be too much dirt um <laughs> i think uh for me a, a personal challenge was um just being conscious that I was co-authoring a chapter with uh, Mary Beth who's literally written the book on the topic of protection inquiry um, I needed to, I just wanted to make sure that my contribution to it actually added some value to someone who's clearly one of the leading industry experts in this space so number one it was uh, a great privilege to be invited to work with Mary Beth on that chapter but I think really what I tried to do with uh, with my contribution was just to effectively communicate some actionable advice that practitioners can take away and work from. And to Melissa's point, try try for it not to be too academic because I think that whilst Human Factors has got very strong roots in academia and that's uh, fantastic that it's got scientific rigor behind it, many of the practitioners that uh, exist around the world and work in uh, companies like Rebus Medical and Agilis and uh, many of the medical device manufacturers themselves, um, they, their access to academic information is often limited or it might not be the first port of call. So um, really I wanted this book to be sort of more of a hands-on, um, I guess, go-to guide on actually if you're stuck and don't quite know how to gain access to a hospital or you need help navigating the IRB process, then actually you might find something that you can take away from that and use as a bit of a signpost towards the right direction. Great. And Mary Beth, do you have anything that, that you saw while you were working on this particular section? So, you know, um, it's, it's, there's always unexpected challenges, you know, from just the pure, like to Melissa's point, writing of the chapter, sitting down and being diligent and keeping the momentum going myself and keeping the team going. Um, and then there's also some really wonderful exchanges professionally between um, Ian and Melissa and just trying to capture, you know, uh, where and when things should start and should stop. You know, with contextual inquiry, it's a little bit obvious because that is one methodology that we were covering. So it was really great to have a discussion with Ian on what does he do? You know, from my perspective, 
yes, there's that first book that was out in, uh, in Contextual Inquiry, but really, you know, things have evolved since I wrote that book in 2015. So things have evolved and practices are different. And then his perspective from an international viewpoint and willingness to share, just phenomenal to to really learn and to just say, you know, maybe I, I wrote that book, but I'm not an expert. I mean, I am an expert, but I want to learn more. And then with Melissa, you know, just where where do we stop and start? Task analysis is such a foundation. It could have been in every single chapter, um, you know, but really just how to, how to get it down to a, a real simple explanation. So some of the some of the surprises I think were just the ability to edit and clear away to you know to Ian's point of making something that is and Melissa's point that get that people can use that they would want to you know, pick it up and they can understand it because I don't think that the majority of industry people have the time to read every academic piece of literature book on human factors um, on each one of the methodologies. So really being able to distill it down into a reference that I can just pick up and I can look at and go, oh, okay, that's the process I need to follow and this is what it says. Or to be able to point to go look because every chapter ends with where else do I find good information? And it'll give you an, another resource. So if you didn't understand from the chapter, you could go in and you could look at it. So it's really, really a great exchange. Yep. Well, is there anything else that, that uh, you, any of you would like to uh, add? No. Just again, thank you for just bringing this together, Mary Beth. I, I know you worked really hard to get this published and brought together a lot of um, great knowledge and huge contribution to the field. So thank you. Yes. My pleasure. My pleasure. Great. Well, I thank you for participating in this uh, series for your new book, Applied Human Factors in Medical Device Design. We had contributors uh, Ian Culverhouse and Melissa Lemke on today. Mary Beth, as always, uh, thank you for joining me. And until next time, I, and we'll talk to you guys again. Thanks, Justin. Thanks. Thanks, Justin. Thank you. This has been the latest episode of the HSDNA podcast. On behalf of our guests today and host Justin Starbird, thank you for listening. As always, to listen to other episodes of HSDNA, go to hs-design.com and scroll over the HSDNA tab on our menu. Until next time, thanks for listening.